Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. Today, my guest is Parth Emin. Parth is an independent journalist based in Mumbai. He mainly covers rural India for multiple publications. His work has appeared in the LA Times, the Washington Post, Al Jazeera, People's Archive of Rural India, or PARI, Times of India Digital, among many other outlets. He's also the recipient of Indian Express Group's Ramnath Goenka Award, as well as European Commission's Lorenzo Natali Media Prize. Quoting the legendary rural reporter P.S. Sainath, on an average, a national daily gives 0.67% of its front page news to the news of rural origin, when 69% of the country's population lives there. Pretty much sums up the state of rural reporting in India. So in this episode, I thought I will talk to Parth about his experience reporting in Vidarbha and Manipur, lessons he learned, and also about the state of press freedom in India, among many, many other things. So let's dive right into it. Hi, Parth. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, Parth, I see that you are an independent journalist, uh, pretty much a freelancer at this point. Um, Walk me through your journey. Uh, Where did you grow up? Uh, Are you a Mumbaiker out and out? Uh, And uh, did you always have a passion in journalism? Well, I'm born and raised in Mumbai, so yes, out and out Mumbaiker. I didn't always have that passion about journalism. In fact, I was playing cricket in Mumbai until I was 19 or 20. Uh, I played at a decent level under 17, under 19 in, in Mumbai. And at about 2021, 20, I wasn't where I should have been. So uh, I thought I should do something else. But uh, when I played cricket, I played I played with some really good players. I played, played with Ranjit Trophy players, uh, first-class cricketers. Actually, I played with Shardul Thakur and Surya Yadav as well. Uh, so... Uh, uh, but at, at, at 2021, I wasn't uh, exactly making it or, uh, you know, wasn't where I should have been. So I quit and I wanted to be a sports journalist initially because I thought uh, that uh, being having played uh, a fair bit of cricket in Mumbai, I could, you know, write about cricket maybe a bit better than some others who haven't had the experience of playing professional cricket. But uh, I wasn't too pleased with how sports journalism was happening in India back then. It was more about PR. It, I, it was, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it was all about, you know, uh, I think social media was also sort of proliferating around that time. And uh, I, I, I felt like I don't want to waste my time running behind people who are not interested in talking to me. So uh, around the same time, I was reading P. Sainath's book, uh, Everybody Loves a Good Drought. Uh, which is about rural India and speaks about social inequalities, uh, you know, uh, marginalized communities and, and so on and so forth. So uh, that book was was a big inspiration, and and I thought I should I should do something like that where I'm going out reporting on stories that uh, not many seem to be keen on. Uh, so that's where the journey sort of started. That's where I thought I should become a journalist uh, and and report on serious stuff and uh, write about stories, write about people who do not make it to your mainstream media. So sort of that's where it, when it all started. Hmm. So you were uh, aware of P. Sainath's work uh, from the Hindu at all? or because... uh, Yeah, yeah. So, 
Yeah, because North India, I mean, uh, at least Bombay does not have that much of proliferation of Hindu as much as, you know, say a Chennai or Hyderabad. Uh, I got to know of Sainath from Hindu. I mean, I was a, I was an avid reader. Uh, every day I used to read uh, almost every single page pretty much. And uh, Sainath's articles were quite an inspiration. Uh, inspiration in, in the sense that, you know, uh, how he would go out of his way to cover some of the, like you said, you know, uh, not so heard of stories. And uh, it, it was interesting in the sense that, you know, if if you are living in a middle class community, uh, so you're sort of living in a cocoon, right? You are uh, interacting with people that are of the same income group uh, and, and so on. Uh, and these articles sort of widened your view about what rural India is like and, and how life is like uh, in rural India. So... That's why I was like, you know, did you got to know him through the Hindu as well and or, or just the book? Uh, well, I was always, I mean, I always knew of P. Sainath uh, because also my father's a journalist, my mother's a film critic. Uh, so there was a lot of, you know, that uh, in my upbringing because uh, I, even now, I mean, I, we have a lot of books in my house. And even though I didn't read a lot as uh, while growing up, I always knew what to pick up, what not to pick up. Uh, my father would always uh, sort of tell me to read Ramchandra Dua, read Prisayanath, uh, read you know this and that. Uh, my mother always uh, was a huge. Uh, she she was she was a film critic, so she would introduce me to world cinema. Uh, she, she, I, I think I was fairly young, the first. Uh, the first foreign film that I saw was Bicycle Thief, uh, and so that 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 was always part of the family. I mean, uh, reading books, uh, fiction, non-fiction, cinema, sports. My parents always encouraged me to sort of uh, engage with that. So I, I was always uh, aware of of Saina, but I started reading. But I picked up his book around the time I I realized I don't want to be a sports person or I can't be a sports person rather, uh, and I should do something. Uh, something else and when I was transitioning sort of from aspiring sports journalist to an aspiring uh, not a sports journalist that's when I was uh, that's when I picked up Sainath's book and uh, thought that this is something I should do. Hmm. Uh, interesting you mentioned about your dad and mom uh, very unconventional profession I mean I'm sure you know when they were choosing their professions it was uh, way more unconven- unconventional than it is now. Uh, tell me more about uh, what your dad did and what your mom did. Uh, was it all in the print media? Uh, yeah, yeah. So initially, uh, when I was, so they started a magazine. Then they started a, a daily paper in Mumbai, which was one of the biggest papers in Mumbai at the time in in the nineties. Biggest in a sense, not in terms of money, but in terms of uh, the magnitude of work it did, especially because. Uh, in 1991, 92, uh, I was born in 91, and 92, 93, you had the bomb blasts and riots in Mumbai. Uh, so, uh, my father and my, my parents basically started a publishing house in the 80s. They started a magazine. Uh, then, in 1989, uh, they started a newspaper in, in Mumbai. It was uh, one of the major newspapers at the time, uh, not in terms of money or in terms of resources. Actually, they they, uh, they had very little resources, and uh, but the work they did was was extremely significant uh, in in the nineties because in nineteen ninety two and ninety three uh, Mumbai saw those bomb blasts and then the riots happened. 
and uh, Bal Thakre's role, nobody had called out the way my father did. Uh, so I think I remember during the nineties, I was uh, uh, we used to get these phone calls of threats and uh, and, and abuses. So so actually we were being told. So my parents were being told uh, long before social media existed. Uh, so uh, th- th- there were these attempts to burn down my my father's office. Uh, I, I I remember one time uh, I was very little and my uh, the car that we were traveling in was stoned. Uh, so things like that used to happen. There was always a police van stationed outside our house uh, because there, there was always a threat to his life. Uh, I if I'm not wrong until. 96, 97, I used to go to the school. I mean, in, in junior KG and senior KG, I used to uh, uh, go to the school with uh, a couple of policemen uh, as, as protection because uh, there was a threat to my life as well. Because uh, the callers had, had sort of told my parents that we know where your son study, studies and, you know, things like that. If you don't back off, if you don't stop writing what you're writing, you may not see him <laughs> again. So my parents had categorically told my uh, teachers in junior KG and senior KG that uh, uh, don't trust uh, him with anybody else. Uh, if, if someone says, I've come to pick up parts, don't let him go. Uh, only trust him if uh, the two of us uh, uh, come, come to pick him up. Or we had a driver back then who uh, was like a, who was with us for a for very long time. So he used to pick me up or my parents used to pick me up. A fourth person was just not allowed to uh, pick me up from, from school because it was quite dangerous at the time. So uh, uh, that was the, that was the atmosphere sort of that I that I grew up in. So it was always quite intense uh, at, at home. Um, my uh, so the paper's name was Mahanagar and my uh, mother's name is Meena Karnik. My father's name is Nikhil Vagai. Uh, both of them ran that paper for a while for about twenty years until. They couldn't run it anymore. In 2007 or 8, uh, my my father was the editor-in-chief of IBM Lokmat. He became the editor-in-chief of IBM Lokmat when Rajdeep Sharadisai wanted to start uh, a Marathi channel uh, with the CNN IBM group. So he became the editor-in-chief and that went on for another eight years. And then for the past uh, eight years, I think my father quit after Narendra Modi came to power and uh, uh, Ambani took over uh, the, the networking group, which is when Rajdeep also resigned, my father also resigned. And uh, since then, he's been doing his own thing. Uh, and I also sort of became a journalist in 2014. Uh, so actually, my career as a journalist and Narendra Modi's career as Prime Minister sort of started started together, fortunately or unfortunately. Uh, so I, I frankly didn't want to be a journalist until I was 2021. But uh, that, that, that upbringing, it was journalism, uh, being aware of what's happening around you, books, culture, movies, uh, sports. It was it was always part of my upbringing. I was, I was always encouraged to uh, sort of engage with them. Uh, I don't remember my parents ever asking me to not go and play, to not watch movies, to study more because, you know, you're wasting time watching films. That kind of thing never happened. Uh, they always believed in uh, showing me. I mean, I, I remember seeing some some great films uh, world cinema, Polish films, even Hollywood classics, uh, Bollywood classics. My parents would sort of encourage me to do that. Um, so, yeah, I had a had a pretty fun childhood. Yeah, that is uh, crazy. I mean, I can totally, uh, you know, remember the times. Uh, 
I mean, I don't remember it very vividly, but at least from documentaries and movies and reading articles about it, uh, how times were like in Bombay in the early 90s, you know, a um, lot more influence of Dawood and the underworld. And, and I mean, there were so many scams as well, you know, uh, stock yeah, market scams. I remember one Monday, one evening, uh, I think my father had written something about Chota Rajan. And uh, I don't think my father had written, but the paper had carried something. And uh, in the evening, uh, uh, his men had called. Uh, and, and they were like, well, I'm going to phone karne ke. So, uh, I remember being very scared at the time. Uh, but, but thankfully, nothing happened. Wow. <laughs> So, so as a family, as a press or publication house, uh, would you call it more left-leaning? Yeah, left of the center, yeah. Interesting. Mm. So you play cricket uh, at a decent level. Uh, how was that experience like? Uh, any hanky-panky experiences when it came to selection or you... I mean, no, I think you... No, none of that. I mean, I... I had a very good time as a uh, in, in Mumbai as a, as a cricketer. And even though I did, did not sort of materialize into a professional career, I sort of cherished those moments. I, I had a great time playing Maidan cricket in Bombay. Uh, you know, taking your kid back, taking the train, playing for your school, then your college, then club. Uh, I was in the uh, probably of Mumbai under-17 team, in a decent level, A-division cricket, where all the, I mean, I, I remember playing against Wasim Jafar as well. So uh, I had a I had a great time uh, playing cricket in Mumbai. Also, team sport just teaches you a lot of things. It it, it sort of teaches you to enjoy each other's success, share each other's failures. Uh, it, it 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 tells you how uh, it can be down one moment, but you have to get past that. And similarly, if, even if you get a hundred, you can't sort of be on cloud nine for far too long because then it, it basically teaches you to stay in the moment. And uh, even though I I, I did not. Become a full-time professional cricketer, I I had a great time and I I I, uh, I, I think I enjoyed every minute. Yeah, I think uh, you rightly said about sport, like it teaches you so much about life, especially uh, comebacks, right? Uh, you know, people write you off and then you still have that chance to prove yourself. And we have so many, so many examples from from history. I mean, Roger Federer is one sort of Ganguly. Um, I can see a Roger Federer poster right behind, uh, right behind you, uh, and yeah, I can, I can also see from your tweets how how big of a fan you are of uh, of his. I am yeah, too. Sports has, even though uh, I have stopped playing cricket, but I've not stopped following sport. I mean, it's uh, it's something that keeps me sane. I would say uh, I have uh, uh, I, I stay up late and. Late uh, to to watch Roger Federer play. I mean, I I was distraught when he when he retired, but it had to happen. I remember I was extremely upset when Ricky Ponting retired. I was a huge fan of Ponting while growing up. I see uh, your Twitter handle is Parth Punter. Uh, yeah, Punter is Ponting's nickname. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, Ponting actually when he was playing, he did not have a lot of fan following in India. I think it was. I was one of the rare ones. I was one of the. He was one of those players people loved to hit, and uh, I just couldn't get enough of him. I couldn't get enough of that arrogance, that aura. You know, collar up, chest out. He was just chingam chabake. He was just. He was just brilliant to watch, and and uh, I loved it when he was batting 
the way he played those full shots on the front foot. I mean, I don't think I've seen a better side in cricket than that. Yeah, I mean that must have been quite a rarity, you know. Uh, but but yeah, I mean looking at the records. I think between 2002 to 2009 uh I think Ponting was just incredible I think his record is second to none Yeah absolutely he was he was a joy to watch And um, let's not disregard fielding <laughs> what a fantastic oh, fielder he was I remember uh, I I had gone to watch a practice session of of Australia when they had come here uh, I don't exactly remember it, which year it was but I was quite young uh but I was always fascinated with the Australian team So uh Ponting was obviously like my favorite player but loved Shane Warne loved Glenn McGrath Adam Gilchrist and all those players uh so when they were here and and they were playing a match at one kid uh, I had gone the day before to watch their practice session and uh Ponting was 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 doing his fielding drill where he was uh, where there was a stump half a stump uh in in, in the ground and he was hitting that half a stump all the time when he was he was doing that fielding drill he was that good with his direct hits so uh, uh i i wasn't uh, so you know when you see that you're not at all surprised when he keeps hitting the stumps uh, from point or from covers because he's so used to doing that practice drill where he's just hitting half a stump all the time it was it was just fascinating to watch yeah i mean i think ponting and even andrew simons were one of these guys who used to hit the stumps all the time i still remember um i think it was robin utapa in the 2007 world cup there was a mix up and yeah. simons just waits that half a second and he he yeah. literally pegs the middle stump and yeah. i mean incredibility yeah i i think 2000 and uh, i mean that australian team wow what a team it was and uh, yeah brilliant really world conquerors you know that, there's a There's that documentary uh, of uh, Michael Jordan in the Last Dance. Uh, someone should make a similar documentary about Ponting and his invincibles around that time. It would be fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Steve Waugh and then Ponting. Yeah, uh, I mean, Steve Waugh has a seventy-five percent Test win record. I mean, are you are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've done they've done that. Uh, both Steve Waugh and Ponting have done that sixteen wins in a row. Uh, Uh, yeah, yeah, quite, quite incredible. Uh, any fond memories from uh, playing with Shardul Thakur and uh, Surya Kumar Yadav? I mean, Shardul gets uh, picked on by uh, a lot of people. I mean, I've seen a few interviews where <laughs> people speak uh, really fondly of Shardul and his antics. But uh, anything that you you can remember from uh, playing cricket with some? Well, he was quick. I mean, he was he was quick. I don't think they would remember me now, but. Uh... uh because obviously they are stars and <laughs> not uh but uh, i remember playing against him with him he was he was fast i played against uh, against him i faced him actually i was a batsman and uh, used to bowl the new ball he was he was fast he was one of the fastest bowlers he was used to be quite wayward uh, initially but when he got it right he was just lethal uh and surya i have i played with him in selection matches under 17 uh, in in the under 17 team and uh one match i remember we had played at at, at matunga where the boundary was uh, was a short square of the wicket but straight it was quite far was it the gymkhana it was uh, no it was on the dpz uh, pitch hmm. so it was uh, matunga gymkhana ka opposite 
so so the, the straight boundary was quite far and i remember surya smoking those sixes uh, straight over the bowler's head like it was child's play uh, he had when, when in, in that particular match he had got some 70 or 80 but i think he hit some five or six sixes in that game so uh, it was it was quite incredible to watch him uh, play and the ease with which he scored those runs yeah i mean i i really hope he uh, comes into the indian team for the world cup i think we are missing a thing or two um maybe uh, i think i was i was actually talking to nitin sundar ex crickinfo and uh, he he also made it a point to mention that uh, you know having surya in the team would uh, would really bolster uh, the batting lineup x factor and what not um we have like so many options to be honest that it's always difficult to sort of someone's going to be left out yeah absolutely uh so parth uh, you play cricket at a decent level but you know was academia also going on in the side uh, what did you major in what college did you go to uh academia as in i wasn't too uh, what do you say uh, you know big on studies i did i was a decent student i did well in school um, but i wasn't uh, i wasn't like you know padhai karke you have to get 90% 95% i wasn't i was never that my parents never asked me to be that to be honest uh which was very cool of them uh but i was always big on playing cricket playing sports whenever i did play cricket i would play carrom with friends and uh playstation with friends and so i was always like uh, and i was going kid uh spending a lot of time with friends i studied when i wanted to or when i had to basically before the exams i didn't even cut down on my sports even when i was doing those ssc exams or whatever 12th standard 15th standard which are supposed to be a big deal for other other students it wasn't uh, that big a deal for me uh, any I, at least i don't remember making it a big deal i studied i studied sincerely so so uh, so yeah i mean i was i was a decent student i did well in studies uh, but it was always i always wanted to sort of play and be you know out and about uh, then after graduation i uh, i did a post grad uh, journalism course uh, i am a commerce graduate I, i took up commerce only because it would allow me to play more cricket i absolutely no uh, uh, recollection of how i passed accounts i don't remember how i got through any of that to be honest i was always out playing cricket but i did somehow manage to get get by uh, after i finished my after after i uh, graduated with uh, bcom because with a degree in bcom got some 73 74% i think 77% i was pretty happy with that uh, uh, i did a post grad journalism course because that's when i decided that i want to become be a journalist and i did my post grad uh, from uh, this place called journalism mentor which is a which is a private uni- university not very many people knew about it but it was quite a Uh, an imaginative course, and two people called Shishin Joshi and Alok Thakur were uh, were the mentors over there, and they were they were really good. Uh, so I did that eighteen month uh, post grad course with them, and after that I started working as a journalist. So what had happened was I was uh, writing for I started writing for DNA Online. Uh, Catch News had just started. Uh, I I had started doing research for Shashank Bengali, who was the editor. south asia editor of los angeles times shashank knew shishir and he had asked him if you know if if he knew someone 
uh, who could do research from him, translations for him. So Shishir had recommended my name and I started sort of working with Shashank as his research assistant or whatever, as a special correspondent. So uh, I spent a lot of time working for him, translating and whatever. And I also told him that, you know, I'd like to uh, do my own stories if, uh, if that's possible. And he was very kind enough to sort of give me that chance because both of us sort of bonded over our mutual love for Roger Federer. And uh, he, 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 he liked some of my story ideas and then we, uh, uh, then we started working on story ideas and I shared quite a few bylines with him. So I started writing for Los Angeles Times and at the same time the stories that did not work for Los Angeles Times I would pitch to Indian publications and that's how it sort of started. So I've always been a, an independent journalist and it's been what eight, nine years now I've, I've been working as an independent journalist. I've since then written for several publications including Washington Post, uh, Wired, which is the American tech magazine. Uh, I've written for The Guardian. I've written for uh, Al Jazeera. And in India, my the stories that so the, the place that I work for most regularly is the People's Archive of Rural India, which is P. Sainath's uh, no, website. So I started working with him, which was like a uh, when I started working for, with P. Sainath, it was a huge deal for me because I had, you know, as I said, I was, I, his book had influenced me a great deal. So when I finally got the chance to work with him, it was amazing to get to know him, work with him closely. It was, it was just wonderful. And, and to this date, I, 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 I mean, very, we very regularly talk about journalism, stories, general cricket. He's also a huge cricket buff. So uh, it's, it, it's something I've, I've, I've been very fortunate with. Yeah, uh, that's that's fantastic to to be able to work with uh, someone who inspired you in the first place uh, must be a great feeling indeed. And I have to also um, accept that I had no idea about uh, People's Archive of Rural India till you mentioned to me about it, and I'm not proud of it. Uh, so I got to know of Pari from from our conversation previously. And I did look it up and what amazing journalism, uh, you know, I, I, I can't believe I never heard about it uh, till this point. Uh, and uh, I'll definitely link Pari in the show notes so that people can go check it out. What amazing stories uh, you guys are bringing out. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, again, it's like he, Hindu was this one place destination for everything. Right. Uh, and I know the, the whole, uh, color of uh, print media has changed uh, i mean writing has changed uh, now and uh, so you get a newspaper and it would have everything from sports to tech news to uh, you know rural news to politics to everything and now i feel like uh, it's more compartmentalized uh, yes you do have these uh, legacy media publishing houses having their own websites but uh, but but because it's more compartmentalized, you need to know where to look for. And uh, that's probably one of the reasons why I never got to know about it. Uh, but uh, what fantastic work. Uh, how did you how did you decide on being a freelancer rather than be associated with a single publishing house? Uh, so when I started working with LA Times and I had this very sweet deal because of Shashank Bengali, uh, where I could also freelance with other publications. I didn't feel the need to uh, associate myself with one publication because I was writing for an international publication as well as 
in in publications whenever i got the chance uh, and there in 2017 la times did some restructuring and uh, i think they shifted some of their uh, resources from south asia to east asia which is when i lost that la times thing shashank was also shashank also moved to singapore after that but by then i had written for these websites uh, so, so quite 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 a lot that i would always get work i mean i, I constantly got work with first post and uh, pari was also obviously there uh, because i had written for uh, la times i could branch out and pitch stories to other international publications uh, started writing for al jazeera uh, so i thought i always uh, I, i never felt like uh, taking up a full time job because it would uh i would lose that uh, opportunity to write for an international publication uh, and i would also be i, I was also afraid that I, i would be stuck covering daily news which i didn't want to do i wanted to write from rural india i wanted to do these detailed long form stories uh, which i get to do at pari and also now at, at, at several other international publications so uh, i i always felt felt like it gave me the liberty to sort of uh, do the stories that i want to do choose the the stories that i want to do and uh, and, and and travel as much as i could so being a freelancer allowed me to travel a lot in the last 8 9 years i've traveled and, and reported from some 20 21 states uh, i don't think i would have had the opportunity maybe to to do that if i had been working for somebody wow uh Yeah that that makes total sense and I think uh, if you were working for a media house you will also be constrained with um you know who owns the media house like you said uh, when when Ambani started to own your dad quit uh, and and there may be a lot of chains put on you right so um so now you are quite unshackled um, so to speak yeah yeah Uh, so part i mean this is my first time talking to someone who has done rural india journalism or rural journalism um, and it must be working so much differently right i mean when when i talk about let's say sports journalists they have uh, the backing of statistics uh, they have the backing of television uh, and when it comes to say a business journalist you know they have data and they can track the stock market they can track uh, annual reports quarterly reports and what not reporting rural india is very different because the data is not as prevalent uh, and the quality of data also might not be uh, as good and it might involve a lot of ground reporting ground reporting so uh, give me a sense of how how rural journalism works uh, do you travel and interview is that the major part of what you do yeah i think half the time half the job is done when you get to a place to be honest rural india is has, has so many stories so many uh, compelling stories that once you get there it's uh, the stories are basically staring back at you uh, it's very difficult to not come back to not come back with a story when you're traveling through the hinterland vast hinterland of, of india Yeah, so when traveling through rural India, I mean, to be honest, there is data, and you need data at the end of the day to make sure that you're trying, you're 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 portraying a, uh, a, a, a an issue that is prevalent that that gives gives a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Uh, but at the end of the day, I still feel it's about uh, stories of of people, you know, because those human interest stories uh, are are very important to me. Uh, and uh, and if you've seen Pari, you know how important they are for 
for the podcast that we do uh, it, it can data tells you how big a problem is but uh, human beings at the end of the day tell you how they felt when they went through that problem or when they lived through that problem so i think both uh, when you combine the two that's when you have a compelling story uh so you and i'm you're always looking out for uh data which might be government uh government reports or it could be reports that that, that the ngos non governmental organizations activists on the ground might have put together they are all very useful uh the idea is to know what is where and then uh cite the appropriate document uh to basically substantiate what i'm trying to say uh but when you're traveling through rural india it's very difficult to not have any stories to be honest because the stories are so compelling that they are basically staring back at you uh, so so i feel half the job is done when you when when you go to the when you travel to the right place and meet the right people the rest of the story then just sort of writes itself uh, i feel some of the most powerful stories you get is when you have have very uh, good local contacts local activists who might be working on that issue for you for years so they know exactly what you're looking at and they know exactly uh, in which direction they could point you and that's what i've i've always done i've kept in touch with touch with my uh, sources on the ground activists uh, working on different issues like you know maternal health uh, education child marriages uh, And, and and so on and so for agriculture uh, so so it's always good to keep sort of keep in touch with them sometimes they get get in touch with you about what's happening sometimes you sort of reach out to them to ask if there's a story uh, here uh, so so it, it it's fun it's it, it's fun to sort of travel and explore stories uh, meet people you would have otherwise never met uh, you know go to places you would have otherwise never visited and travel and on other people's money so it's 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 a good life yeah interesting and and you know i was thinking about uh, how a farmer or someone in the in the heartlands of india would feel when a journalist is coming to report their story right um you know some may also feel that here is a city dweller who is you know who has come here to make money off of us you know Uh, wanting to write a story uh, we don't know if the story is going to make any difference in our you know fundamental difference in our lives because our lives has been the same people have come and gone people have reported politicians have come asked for votes and they have gone and not looked back at looked back at us so you must have also faced some levels of hostility uh, during your travel or was it all very welcoming uh, how do people deal with uh, a city dweller uh, wanting to cover their story well uh, i think what you should do as a reporter is just be honest about your job and what you want to do with their story uh, you shouldn't be making any false promises that you know if you write about them uh, somebody will help you or your lives will drastically change there's no point in sort of getting into any of that and i have always felt like if you're honest i have always uh, experienced that when you're honest about your job uh, they are very welcoming they want to talk about their problems and uh, i've sure there are farmers sometimes they say we are not interested in talking to you and you respect that i mean that's that's fine and you move on to somewhere but most of the times i mean that that very very rarely sometimes 
tells you to uh, you know get lost uh, most of the times i have i've been welcomed uh, and farmers have sort of opened uh, opened their homes their hearts and sat across the table and and, and shared their stories it's i i also feel uh, it, it happens uh, it, it gets a little easier when you have a, a contact who they trust so if a, if an activist in the region is working has been working in uh, for for a farmer or for uh, on a particular issue for a, for a long period of time the farmers trust that activist and when you go through that activist uh, the farmers automatically trust you uh, they know that this guy is not a fraud basically mm-hmm. so that's when uh, they they sort of open up and also when you're talking to them you don't i mean at least what i do is i don't immediately ask them hard questions i'll ask start off with uh you know stories about i'll i'll start off with questions around uh whether or how much people there are how many people in the village what what crops do they have and so on and so forth and then maybe get into uh if there's been a suicide in the house then talk about that uh, climate change where the patterns And, and so on and so forth so how much loss that might have they might have incurred uh, you, you you get into that after uh, after a bit and that's when i think because uh, uh, a story can only be compelling when the farmers sort of open up and and, and uh, speak their hearts out and, and for that you need to sort of give them time uh, i i i feel they they, they 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 might get conscious if you immediately start photographing them they, they, it could they could they could be taken aback but once they are at ease with you when you spend a couple of hours with them that's when they open up when when farmers open up about agriculture they speak about climate change it's one of the most insightful conversations you'll ever have because they are the ones living through it uh, sure climate change it sounds like an academic topic and you know there are these very uh, sophisticated english speaking people uh, speaking in jargons but Uh, when you speak to a farmer about climate change they know exactly what they're talking about because they've lived through it and i have found those conversations most interesting yeah i think uh, you know i'm sure that you know human connections and the trust that you build with people is uh, very very important in this aspect uh, you know uh, i'm sure language also goes a long way you know if you can speak the local language that will go a long way and like you mentioned you know having a social activist who they trust who has made a change in their lives um and you know it, it's a all again all about uh, gaining confidence right and i think it's uh, something that you age like fine wine uh, the more you report the more experience you have uh, i think the more they trust uh, and absolutely and, and some of the farmers uh, in maharashtra for example they're they're on facebook with me they have my number if this If there's something happening in their village in the district now they call me up and tell me hey, look you should look at this this is a story here uh this has happened that has happened uh you know so now i've i've sort of have, uh, over the past 8 9 years i've managed to sort of build contacts across uh india mostly central and, and north india i haven't traveled much in south i've traveled through tamil nadu and uh, karnataka but again as you said the language barrier uh is is a bit of a problem so it it gets difficult to form these uh long term relationships in uh, in in villages of karnataka and tamil nadu because uh, 
you are not familiar with their language and they are not familiar with yours but in maharashtra or even in up for example i have uh, up rajasthan gujarat i have, I have contacts that, uh, that 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 are still in touch with me even if i don't have a story from there we are we are in touch uh, and and it's it's that's how actually you get better as a reporter because a reporter is only as good as his sources that's what people say so uh, you know uh, reporters are as good as their sources and, and, and your job is to basically build your sources as you go along yeah that 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 makes complete sense uh, and i was uh, looking at some of your work that you have done for pari and one thing that you know w- one of your recent work was i mean really heartbreaking to be honest um uh, it was about uh, farmers in vidarbha you know devastation caused uh, due to cotton crops uh, mental health support uh, being taken away uh, after being assigned a psychologist and i feel like uh, you know the farmer suicides in vidarbha i mean people have been reporting it for years and it's a it's been sort of a perennial problem kind of uh, and the mental health um of farmers is probably not as spoken about and uh, we can all, all imagine the kind of things that they have gone through and you also touched upon climate change and how it's affecting farmers uh, what have been some of the stories pertaining to climate change i know we'll come to the mental health and suicide part later but what have been some of the compelling stories that they have said about climate change and how it is affecting crops in india Uh, yeah so the story that you are referring to it was an attempt to look at uh, the mental health of farmers in times of climate change and agrarian crisis because uh, it, it's all interrelated right climate change uh, worsens the agrarian crisis the agrarian crisis is worsened so farmers mental health is worsened uh, it, it's it's all connected to each other so the idea was to sort of uh, look at all three uh, and tell that story through the lens of those who are suffering the most uh for that i mean i i, I went to the ministry and got some data which was not published before and managed to uh, you know uh, look at how many health mental health camps that 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 have been held uh, how many people were found to have uh, problems with their mental health and then what happened after that that was the the whole point of looking at that story uh and it turns out that the, the state government of maharashtra hasn't spent a lot of money i think they spent only 8% of their budget in uh in the past 2 years 3 years uh which is quite appalling i mean i think uh, uh it is it is one of the most important things uh, happening in the country right now or in the world climate change is here and uh farmers are sort of living through it every day And, and and how it works basically is that whatever the farmers have learned uh, over a period of their lifetime it's it's all gone down the drain they cannot so they've always known uh, that monsoon st- uh, so so once the first couple of showers happen in the mid in mid july they would start planting seeds they would start sowing uh, processes it start the sowing process and then as uh, as the as, as the monsoon progresses you do what you what you should with uh, with with time now with climate change there are the the, the the weather patterns are completely unpredictable the first showers happen and then there's a 45 day dry spell uh, which completely ruins whatever you have planted then you have to plant again 
when the uh, when the showers happen it's like a cloud burst so uh, there's excess rainfall that completely drowns the farmland so the only thing that the farmers have known and they were experts in uh, a farmer basically told me this that this is the only thing we have known and now we don't know that as well so it's very disorienting because uh, you know uh, this this farmer who was speaking to he said that i haven't studied much i don't know a lot of things but one thing i've always known one thing i've always uh, felt like this was my area was agriculture because that's what i've done all my life and now after like doing it for 40 years i feel i don't know this i don't know what to do uh, about it the weather has completely thrown me off so how do i reconcile uh, with, the, with the fact that the one thing that i knew all my life is something that uh, that is that is letting me down so so that is a that is a huge uh, a, a problem and the and there's a huge gap in addressing that uh, That, that that anxiety and tension and, and, and which leads eventually to depression among farmers. Uh, there is very little intervention, especially in rural areas, when it comes to uh, you know handling uh, handling farmers' mental health. Yeah, I mean we all know that how expensive mental health and hiring a psychologist can be, and so so what have been some of the measures that the government has taken in this regard, uh, assigning psychologists to tackle the so problems with. there are district mental health programs uh, in each state in each district of the state uh, but the staff, but but they are short staffed so they are supposed to sort of reach out to people and mental health it, it's it, it, you can't uh, figure it out overnight right it, it, it has to be a recurring process now if you are uh, if a farmer has to travel an hour and a half to get to a, a psychologist or a therapist you're basically discouraging discouraging them from getting a recurring recurring treatment uh, and that's what that's exactly what has happened you know there are these mental health camps sometimes many farmers i met they didn't even know that there was uh, the district mental health program in place and uh, the, the the program uh, has has been conducting mental health camps to identify people with mental health issues how do uh, they react come across how do they react to something like mental health you know obviously the awareness is quite low in india and i'm sure it's lower in that's a strata of the society so uh, when when someone says that hey i'm a psychologist i'm here to deal with your problems uh, how do they react are they aware that they have an issue and this needs to be addressed uh, when i spoke to therapists who have worked in rural india they've said that people have been uh, very uh, open to it uh if you approach them uh approach them with a warmth and welcoming feel uh but the problem is not enough people have been approached that's the gap uh so the mental health district mental health program lacks in reaching out to the last person on the ground uh because of its underfunding uh, because it is underfunded and even the funding that is there is is not been has not been utilized uh so there is this Uh, so there are these mental health camps that are, that have happened and people have and and, and through those camps uh, farmers laborers people in rural india at large have uh, have been identified uh, as people who have had uh, you know who are in distress who have uh, who need help but then nothing happens after that there is no follow up because you have to reach where the people are you can't expect people to come to you that's the whole point and that is not happening that is the big problem 
yeah i mean uh, i mean what you mentioned about climate change it's 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 so true right i mean that is the one thing that they have learned through generations and i'm pretty sure the, their parents were farmers and they also learned a, a thing or two about climate and when to sow and reap uh, over the years and and now everything is uh, off the radar uh, that's yeah so it when it rains it rains a lot when it doesn't it just doesn't rain at all how do you prepare for that kind of a weather right so uh, it's just it, it, it's just completely throw all their calculations off uh, and more often than not it leads to a cycle of losses and uh, losses then lead to a cycle of debt which sort of keeps piling with every season and then there's eventually a, a breaking point so climate change is the first uh, and the and sort of the primary reason behind these deaths because you know it could be it could be something else as well like you know farmers not getting things. a fair I mean, price um there's a lot of things climate change is just one part of it and it has exacerbated the agrarian crisis but the farm farm crisis dates back to uh, i mean years sinat has been writing about it for 30 years 40 years so uh, agrarian crisis has uh, has always been there but climate change has exacerbated it a lot uh, other part things about climate, about the agrarian crisis include farmers not getting a fair price uh, the input costs costs have risen uh, because of the inflation uh, the production costs have gone gone up petrol has been, become expensive secondly there, there's not enough uh, uh, credit systems in rural, rural areas the rural banks uh, the district cooperative banks are uh, are in shambles uh, they don't have the ability to give out crop loans and because of the lack of credit systems farmers are forced to sort of approach private money lenders who charge exorbitant interest rates uh, which range from 4% to 10% per month i read 60% uh, in uh, one of your so articles even a supposedly yeah yeah so it it can it can range from 4% to 12% or 10% per month which means they are paying 48% to 96% uh, and sometimes know, yeah. even more just in interest so the principal of the principal amount stays where it is and even so uh, it, it is and they end up paying that interest for years to come and so even a supposedly manageable amount ends up uh, uh, becoming an albatross around them like so it's a it's a so, so that's a there's a combination of factors that that leads to this agrarian crisis and climate change of course has uh, worsened it a lot yeah uh, i mean there are some schemes uh, surrounding microfinance and i don't know how much it's being applied to uh, the agrarian crisis or the farmers um, but yeah i mean climate change especially in vidarbha which is which sees some severe temperatures in in the summer and i and i'm i know that that part of the country has also faced a severe drought in the past few years so um yeah it's uh, it, it's a very very tough spot uh, to be in yeah uh, it's it's vidarbha and marathwada both regions have seen uh, thousands of farm suicides every year since for the last 20 years now mm. yeah uh, part uh, another aspect of your writing that i found was uh, with technology and how technology has impacted rural india 
Uh, and one of the things that I note uh, in your article with Wired is uh, is about Manipur. And uh, we all know what's going on in Manipur. Uh, funny enough, some of the journalists are uh, busy flying to Israel when they are not flying to Manipur to cover, uh, you know, so many deaths, so many people displaced, uh, clashes going on day in and day out, uh, murders, rapes, and, and all of that. Um the government imposes uh, an internet blackout in Manipur uh, when violence begins, and uh, you know nobody knows about it. Uh, uh, nobody knows about what's going on in Manipur. That is, um, so you know you come from a family of journalists and uh, media personalities. Uh, how I mean, I'm sure you talk to your dad about it uh, quite a bit. And how do you dip, how do you think the press freedom has changed? Uh, from let's say the mid '90s to now, uh, and what have been some of uh, your learnings in the process? Well, so uh, regarding Manipur, I, I uh, remember I was uh, sitting at home in my room and watching uh, watching a movie or something like that. And my father came to my room and he was like, "Why aren't you going to Manipur?" I said, uh, "Somebody should commission a story. I can't just <laughs> randomly land up in a state that's in the state of civil war." So he said, "Why not?" I said, so I didn't have an answer to that. I was like, yeah, I mean, I could go. Uh, so he said, I mean, there's a, there's a, this is a huge, huge story. You should, you should cover it. You should go and cover it. So in my head, I was like, Manipur people in Northeast are covering. Then there are journalists from Delhi who have gone because it's, it's, it's close. Who's going to send someone from Bombay to Manipur? So I shot an email to Wired and uh, uh, I, I asked Peter Guest, who's a fabulous editor. Uh, he, I, I, I told him the, the story idea there's an internet shutdown so I, there was an internet there was a technology connection there uh, so so I pitched a story and he said yeah sure you should go so uh, the, the only reason I could go to whatever uh, because my father sort of planted that seed in my head that uh, so he, he basically said that even if so nobody commissions the story you should just still go spend your money and go because it's a uh, it's a story that you should come uh, uh, I don't know Many parents would encourage their kids to go to a place where there's a civil war going on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, he has seen uh, he has seen Shiv Sena, Chota uh, Shakil. I'm sure he's uh, he's made of nothing but titanium. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so I was like, yes, that was, that's a good idea. So it hadn't struck me. So I, I I I went to Manipur only because he planted that seed in my head. Uh, then I I went to Manipur. Uh, I and. and you know the the only the, I think people started talking about it only after that video came out of two women uh, who was stripped and molested and that video came out and then uh, people realized how how horrific the magnet situation in in Manipur uh, and and that was a three month old video and the only reason that video hadn't come out and we hadn't heard of the magnitude of the of the crisis in Manipur is because of the internet shutdown. So that, that was my idea to go back to my, to go to Manipur and then basically write about what happened in the dark. Uh, so it was it was an experience. It was uh, obviously not an easy place to report from. Remember reporting there, there was gunshot. I could hear you know gunshots firing uh, from behind. Uh, it was it was that kind of an experience. So so uh, also incredibly heartbreaking and difficult interviews. That you had to meet people and speak about uh, some of the 
most gruesome things that uh, that they have had to live through. Uh, and I think in the last ten years, to, to, to come to your question about uh, press freedom, uh, I have absolutely no doubt that the press freedom in the last ten years have worsened. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, I I don't think it was it was it was great in India. There was there were always problems with with, with press freedom. There you you will find examples from the past where journalists were targeted and uh, threatened and intimidated in jail. But the consistency, the fear with which uh, this government has operated in the last eight nine years, especially in the last five six years. Is 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 chilling. I mean, raiding journalists left, right, and center, targeting young journalists, targeting senior editors. Um, I mean, charging journalists with terrorism charges. Yeah. Yeah, the news click episode, right? The news click episode. The Delhi it's, police raids news click and uh, sees laptops, ridiculous. phones, uh, detains two journalists. I mean, what's I mean, going on? News clicks. The Kapan, for example. The guy, the guy is on his way to cover a story, and you put him in jail for two years, two, two and a half years, only because he was on his way. He's a Muslim man, Muslim journalist, on his way to cover a rape uh, in your state. So you just lock him up for two years. It's it's not a joke. Uh, uh, I mean, it's there is there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that uh, the state of journalism today is at its lowest ebb. The mainstream media has become so pliant; it is basically an extension of Modi's IT self. Um, you know, people talk about Modi's ability to set the narrative and so on and so forth. I feel even anybody would be able to set the narrative if he had a battery of you know 500 TV anchors with millions of followers who are willing to amplify anything that he says. Uh, so it's not so so. Uh, when we analyze Modi's ability to set an agenda, when we analyze Modi's uh, communi- quote-unquote communication skills, we should remember that he has more resources than any other leader in, in the country. Uh, so I, uh, when I watch TV, I mean, I don't watch, I've stopped watching TV for, for a really long time, but uh, like other tragedies in the world, I end up hearing about it. Uh, so uh, when... Uh, when I get to know what's happening on TV, you know, people are tweeting about it. I follow News Laundry. Yeah, so when I watch some of these uh, TV anchors claiming to be journalists, I feel extremely embarrassed that they are supposed to be in the same profession that I am. Uh, they've, they've caused irrevocable damage to India's democracy. What we have seen in India today is, uh, you know, to use Noam Chomsky's line, We've seen uh, manufacturing public opinion on mass, uh, and 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 basically what what this what through the media what we have told our common people, electorate citizens, is that if you think of anybody other than Narendra Modi as an option, you are either either an idiot or an anti-national, and that sort of brainwashing has led to where we are today. I mean, it's it's a it's it's probably the most challenging time to be a journalist. Do you think it would have been the case if, uh, you know, the rise of Modi and his, you know, rise to power was not coinciding with social media and rise of uh, WhatsApp and all of that in India? Social media has certainly uh, 
exacerbated their cloud. I mean, they've used it to their advantage. There's no doubt about that. But again, when you want to use social media to your advantage, you have to have uh, the resources to, to be able to do that. Uh, no doubt there's a lot of skill and hard work in, in place. But uh, we have to remember that BJP has more resources today than the next five or six political parties combined. Uh, if you read this recent uh, report in Washington Post, they had used 150,000 people just for social media in, in Karnataka elections. You need money for that kind of stuff. Uh, but I feel if the social media hadn't been there, they would have done some, they would have used something else. They would have used, used some other tools. Uh, it's, it's tough to say exactly how things would have planned out. But even without social media, they have the battery of news anchors at their disposal who are willing to amplify everything that they do. Uh, so I, I don't think it would have made a lot of difference. I mean, it would have made a bit of difference, but they still have uh, your 9, time, 9 p.m. prime time people uh, batting for you. So I, I don't think uh, this, I don't think his clout would have been any different. He would have still been as uh, popular and effective, perhaps. Hmm. At least that's my sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, pre-2014, you know, the UPA2 government was was still in power, you know, it was lots of scams, 2G scam, Commonwealth Games and and all of that. Um, now, BJP is this party that did not win majority in the previous two elections. India Shining was its big hope, uh, but did not quite make it in 2004. How did they actually go about go about this like where did they start i mean i'm I'm still amazed at how they could get an arnab goswami to bat for them uh it, it's quite remarkable how they all started and it has spiraled to uh unbelievable proportions now there is there's no shortage of opportunists to be honest i mean when uh, everyone wants to be close to power and, uh, so that in the hope that some of their power runs off on them uh 2014, I wasn't surprised they were voted, uh, the, the UPA2 was voted out. There was huge anti-incumbency. Uh, the Anna Hazari movement was handled very badly. I mean, even today talk about that being RSS-sponsored or whatever. And even if, I mean, I don't know if it was or if it wasn't, but even if it was, uh, the Congress didn't handle that very well. I mean, they could have, like, uh, they, they let it fester. At least that's my view. Uh, but uh, so, so there was a lot of anti-incumbency in 2014 that that, uh, that that they capitalized, that the BJP capitalized. Uh, they, they had a fairly sort of a smart campaign, I would say, uh, which sort of had everything for everyone. Uh, they talked about better governance uh, for the middle class. They spoke about enforcing the Swaminathan Commission that would get the farmers on their side. They spoke about uh, you know, uh, a lot of things. And while they did all of that, there was a clear-cut message that you would see an authoritarian sort of a right-wing shift in India's democracy. Uh, a lot of people, I thought, uh, during that time, underestimate, Narendra, underestimated Narendra Modi's ability to become a dictator. Uh, a lot of the columnists, I remember, saying that he deserves a chance and things like that. He won't be as, as bad. He won't be able to do what he did in Gujarat. Uh, I, I don't know where that <laughs> came from, but I, I was also a young journalist. I was about 22, 23 at the time. 
and uh, uh, but, I, but I remember wondering where this confidence is coming from because, because he had you, you, you exactly knew what he had done in Gujarat so if he had done that in Gujarat why couldn't he do it in India uh, why couldn't he replicate that model he's done that exactly uh, today when you look, look back 2019 was uh, uh, I, I, I thought the bigger sort of a uh, PR campaign that 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 was that that got that made them successful. There was Balakot, of course, that drove up the sentiment. Uh, there was uh, they had the baggage that uh, inflation was at an all time high. I think uh, employment was uh, unemployment was at an all time high. Uh, yet they managed to win because of Hindutva, because of this you know uh, uh, Balakot. The sentiment was uh, running high. There was a lot of sort of welfare politics that they had promised, which seemed to be striking a chord. And of course, the media. I mean, there was the media constantly hammered in this narrative that if not Modi, then who? You know, uh, and, and and that sort of played a huge role. I feel uh, not that I am a fan of Rahul Gandhi, but I feel there's a huge media campaign that has gone behind. Defaming his image, uh, I, 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 I absolutely feel that uh, if the media had at least done their job with you know fifty percent honesty, uh, I don't think it would have been as easy for the BJP to just win election after election. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, you know, we are closing in on the elections. Uh, do you see something similar to two thousand and four India shining happening this this time around, or is it going to be more the other way? Say, it's tough to say. It's still a long way. I mean, that was an really, unexpected election. Uh, I have to, uh, I have to be, be honest. Yeah, I mean, after Balakot, it was quite clear who's going to win. Uh, yet, even before Balakot, I thought the BJP was ahead. But after Balakot, it was just over. Uh, this time, I mean, I, it, it's too early to say. Let's see what happens in these state elections. Uh, it, it, it's important to note that the BJP had lost these state elections in 2018 as well. And then they ended up sweeping the same states that they had lost in Lok Sabha elections. So uh, you never know, as they, as they say, a week is, is a long time in politics. Uh, so it will it will depend on a lot of factors. It will it will depend on how the opposition alliance sort of gels together, how if, if they're able to put up a, a coherent sort of opposition front and they're, they're able to sort of campaign uh, on, 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 on a common ground. Because right now it seems a little uh, iffy because Rahul Gandhi is attacking Adani, Mawa Maitre is attack, attacking Adani, but Sharad Pawar is cutting a ribbon with Adani. So, you know, it sends sort of a confusing signals to the electorate when that sort of things happen. Uh, I feel uh, they need to get their act together and, and soon. Uh, having said that, uh, I, I feel these the two states of Maharashtra and Bihar uh, would, be, would be incredibly challenging for the BJP. I don't think they they get the success that they got in the past two general elections in these two states. Uh, the Congress's biggest challenge is to recover some ground in states like uh, Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan, Chhattisgarh, Haryana. Uh, you know states where they are in direct competition with each other, Karnataka, because South India is is fairly uh, covered as far as the opposition is concerned, but it's the central and north. That poses a lot of challenge to the to the opposition alliance. 
Gujarat is uh, is is gone. There is no way uh, they are going to get anything in, from Gujarat. There are no there is no way they are going to get anything from UP. Uh, I think these two states, the BJP has a very strong hold, uh, and uh, I think they'll continue to uh, replicate their results over the past ten years in in twenty twenty four. But states like Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, Haryana, Chhattisgarh, these are the places where they'll have to sort of recover some lost ground to at least dent the BJP's chances. Partly, Bhagwan Malik dikhte. Yeah, Parth, you mentioned uh, that you don't follow the news. Uh, but uh, but before we... I follow we the have... news. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't follow the news, news channels. channels. Yeah, the yeah. News. <laughs> I'm sorry, that, that's what I meant. Uh, you don't follow the news channels. Um, but uh, before we end this podcast, I, I think it'll be lovely if you could share maybe uh, three or four uh, news outlets. Uh, it need not be print. It, ne- it need not be television. It could be YouTube. It could be websites that uh, can be relied upon uh, as as a source. You know, again, this is not an endorsement, but uh, yeah, I, I can no, speak. I can I can tell my mind. You know, I, I definitely do follow Deshbhakt uh, channel on YouTube, uh, print, uh, now Pari uh, as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think these are some of the names that I can think of um, for a news laundry, of course. I think we we both spoke about it, right? Um, uh, I also follow Meghnath. I happen to do an episode with him uh, uh, yeah. for, for my podcast. So I also follow his commentary and i think uh, i think that's that's pretty good as well uh, would love to know what are yours uh, well i feel uh, the, the days as you as you briefly mentioned earlier the days where you could get everything under one roof they're gone uh, so you have to sort of get different sorts of uh, news stories from different uh, places so if you want ground reports from rural india I'd definitely say pari if you want uh, you know, media critique, again, ground reports, news laundry. Uh, if you make media commentary, media critique, ground reports, stories around media, news laundry is, is, is doing, I, I feel. Regarding the dosage of news laundry, do you think they go a little overboard? Uh, dosage as in? What dosage? Uh, dosage of criticism. Well, I think the mainstream media deserves every criticism that comes there. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, as much as you can criticize the mainstream media, I think it's less. So, uh, I mean, to each their own. Uh, yeah. I, I frankly have uh, very deep-rooted hatred for uh, for the mainstream media and what they've done, especially because of the damage they've done to the profession and to India's democracy. So, it also comes from this. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so that. that, that, that so, so that's there. And of course, I mean, fake news is such a huge uh, uh, epidemic in India right now that alt news is a must. Uh, I think what uh, Pratik and Zubair have done with alt mm-hmm. news is just, I think it's a landmark milestone achievement uh, that, that that is absolutely uh, that is must follow. And... Uh, Besides that, there are a lot of, I mean, South K report, South India often gets neglected. So News Minute is, has done some excellent coverage of South India. Yeah, Dhanya uh, and uh, I, I forget her uh, partner's name. Yeah, uh, they are they are doing a great job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they've done, they've done, they've done a great job of reporting from South. Uh, Scroll, I like their ground reports. Scroll was actually one of the very few publications uh, that was reporting from Manipur before, uh, you know, throughout uh, 
the crisis. Uh, so, so I like scroll as well. And besides that, I think uh, there are a lot of independent journalists now who are writing for multiple publications and are doing doing good work. So, uh, it's you know, uh, it's it's always good to sort of follow independent journalists who, who might be reporting for international publications, Indian publications. Uh, and uh, I, I also feel the international media has has, has, has has begun to cover India. Not begun to, I mean, they've always covered India, but they've covered it a lot better because Indian journalists are now part of international publications. And, and, and then, because generally there is this rising interest in South Asia and India, uh, they're also looking at India more keenly and uh, engaging with in, in, Indian freelancers, Indian journalists, uh, which has only bolstered their coverage. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I think I think some really honorable mentions. I think scroll.in is something I missed as well. News Minute uh, as well. So yeah, definitely great sources. Uh, uh, also, uh, really like watching Karan Thapa's interviews on The Wire. So if that is something uh, yeah. your, your listeners might be interested in. Then yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, Karan, very, very sharp uh, analytical interviews. Yeah. Masterclass, absolutely. <laughs> in, in, in taking an interview, asking sort of follow-up questions, cross crossing the uh, the guest, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, uh, there was, I think Madhu Trehan had. Uh, I don't think it was News Laundry, but she had something else. Uh, I think before News Laundry, uh, or was it News Laundry? I, I don't quite remember. But yeah, yeah, could be. Yeah, I don't remember watching her stuff a lot, but uh, I'm. Uh, followed News Laundry closely, I think, but uh, the reporters, they they have some really good reporters uh, and they've done some great work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Parth, what an engaging conversation. Uh, loved your insights about rural India, climate change, the agrarian crisis and uh, some common love related to sport and uh, also about the state of journalism uh, that it is now and uh, your thoughts on it and uh, and you were really open and blunt about what you feel about it and and rightly so. Uh, so thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank Absolutely you. Thank you loved. for having me. Had a good time. Thank you so much.